Well, welcome to Cities Church, Pastor Kyle here, and we are in the new normal. And you know you are in a new normal when you have new vocabulary. We have words and we have phrases that would not have made sense to us three, four, five weeks ago. Words like shelter in place, words like social distancing that we're now seeing everywhere. But guess what? There's other words. There are words that are scary words that you've heard, but now they have a whole new meaning. They become much more personal. Words like pandemic, that's scary for our health. Words like um, recession or unemployment. And there's just so much about the future that is unknown. And so here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you how we are responding as a church. Because here's a, here's a good leadership principle. Crisis creates clarity. And we, because of the crisis that we are in as a nation, as a city, we are more clear than ever what the mission of the church is. We want people to meet Jesus and be made into his disciples. We want to meet the needs of our city in Jesus' name. We want to bring the healing and the hope uh, of Jesus and his salvation to people. And so let me tell you what we're doing. Internally, we are ramping up all of our communication. We are over-communicating, I hope. You are going to be constantly getting new content. I'm here on the weekend. We're preaching through the book of Galatians. We're releasing devotionals. Follow us on social media. Check your email. We're going to be over-communicating. Um, we are the same church. We're just online only now. The, the church, by the way, never was a service. The church has a service. And now our services look different, but we are the same church with the same mission, with the same people. It's just online. Now, we're transitioning to what I kind of jokingly call discipleship. Okay, whether it's discipleship, it's happening on Skype or it's happening uh, on FaceTime or it's happening on Google Meet uh, or it's happening on Zoom uh, because we're still trying to connect each other to relationships because like we always say, discipleship happens in relationships. And, and so that's what we're doing internally. That's what we're doing as a church. We're also loving and caring for our city. I want you to know that this week we gave away $25,000 in Jesus name to meet needs in our city. We're coming alongside organizations that are doing an incredible job in our city. They're helping with hunger. They're helping with homelessness. They're helping with the crisis that's happening because of unemployment. Uh, they're helping with children and meeting needs. And we are coming alongside these organizations because we know that the wave is coming. We want to help fuel and fund what they are doing. And we're doing that in Jesus' name. And we're doing that because of your generosity. And what we want to do is we want to pray right now. We want to pray for our church and we want to pray for our city in this unique season and for however long it lasts, would you take a moment, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Um, Lord, I want to pray right now for our city, and particularly there's a few people that I want to pray for. I want to pray for, for a few groups of people. I want to pray for our medical workers as they are working tirelessly. They are working again and again and again. They are going in early. They are staying late. They are putting themselves in harm's danger harm's way. I pray you would, you would protect them and bless them. Lord, I want to pray right now for our governmental leaders at a local, at a national, at a state level. Lord, I pray that you would, as they have to make massive and monumental decisions constantly with a lot of moving targets, I pray for them. Lord, I want to pray right now for our teachers who are trying to educate the next generation online. And, and parents are trying to figure it out, and teachers are trying to figure it out, and professors are trying to figure it out, and students are trying to figure it out, and I pray for that. Lord, and we pray for the whole food industry, from the truck driver to the grocery store worker, uh, to, the, to the person in the drive-thru. Lord, we, we pray and we thank you, Lord, that so many people are stepping out, putting themselves at risk to, to meet the needs of people. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be here 
every weekend preaching through the book of Galatians. So if you'll turn to and type to Galatians, and here's why I'm doing that. Because when life is abnormal, you need more normal things in your life. And so we're going to be walking through this book in a season where you probably more than ever feel shackled to your home. We're going to talk about how you're free in Christ. When more than ever, you may feel like you don't have any personal freedom or personal autonomy. We're going to talk about the liberty that you have in Christ. And so I am incredibly excited for this and for this season that we have. So, so let, let's dive in to the book of Galatians, chapter three, verse one. And here's what you're gonna see. Remember, by the way, these books, the way that they were written, they were letters, they would be received. Then they would say, hey guys, we have a letter from Pastor Paul. And then they would open up the letter and they would read it. Everyone would gather close, it was small churches. They would read the letter out loud slowly and then everybody would talk about it, okay? And so here's what he does. Imagine getting this letter, it's chapter three and it says this. Uh, hey guys, we have a letter from Paul. Here's what it says in chapter three. It says this. Oh, foolish Galatians. <laughs> Isn't that, it's kind of like the whole idea there is like, um, one translation actually translates it, uh, you idiots. It's like, hey guys, we got a letter from Paul. He called us an idiot. Uh, and, and here's the whole idea here. Um, there are people that are foolish. It is possible even for Christians to be foolish, right? Not all religions are the same. There is good and evil. There is lies and truth. There is Christianity and there are all other spiritualities. And what he does is he calls them foolish. Now we may go, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, Jesus called people foolish. Jesus called the disciples foolish in Luke 24 at the road to Emmaus. Jesus called the Pharisees foolish in Matthew 23 and in other places like that. And and here's the big idea there, that that in the Bible, there are three types of people. And in your life, you are one of these three types of persons. Uh, You are either simple, you are foolish, or you are wise. Simple means you don't know any better. And and that's young people. That's children. Uh, They are young. They are naive. They are simple. They don't know. We have to teach them. The foolish person is the person who knows what he or she should do, but does not act on it, does not believe it, does not do it. The, the wise person is the person who uh, knows what they should do and does it. And the scripture says the wisest thing a person ever could do is put their faith in Christ. That when they see themselves as sinful, they see Christ as a great savior, the wisest and most winsome thing to do is to put your faith in Christ. And so that's the first thing. He says, hey, he says, you're foolish. But then what he does, and this is so interesting, and this is a great time for us to think about this, he asks a bunch of questions. In verses one through five, he asks six questions in five verses. We are in a season in life where people are asking questions. And let me just say this, your questions tell me a lot about you. And my questions tell you a lot about me. I can say a lot of things. I can say I believe certain things, but my questions, the questions that I ask reveal where my heart really is. Paul's heart is a heart of love toward these people. And so he's going to ask them some deep spiritual questions. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you asked your spouse or your kids or people in your community group or people in our church or other Christians that you know, when have you asked them good questions? Questions about, hey, how's your marriage going? How are you trying to love and serve your spouse? Are are you learning, reading anything in the Bible? Is there anything in your life that you feel convicted about? You're trying to repent of? Is there anybody in your life that you're trying, that's far from God and close to you that you're trying to share the gospel with? I'll tell you, if we, the way that you create a healthy culture in a family or in a church or in a community group is, or in a business, is the questions that you ask ask. And so he begins to ask these questions. Um, here's, here's the first question that he asks. Here's what he says. Um, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Look at verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that is an interesting phrase. Uh, bewitched is, um, you know, it's not, not talking about the 1970s Nick at Night show, okay? Bewitched, it, but you can see the word witch in there. It's a demonic term. What it basically means is um, who has put, literally it means who has put you under a spell. Now this is interesting. Here's what he's saying. It's possible to be a Christian, to be a Christian for a while and to start believing the wrong things, to start listening to the wrong people. 
Uh, he, the, the, the way we'd probably say it today to be put under a spell, we'd probably say you're not living in reality. You're not living in the real world. He's saying you're listening to the wrong people. For them, they were listening to uh, these people called the Judaizers who came in and they basically said, uh, the grace of God's not enough. The cross of Christ is not enough. The spirit of God's not enough. That's what they were teaching. Who, let me just ask you this. Who are you listening to, right? I mean, if you opened up your podcast and your YouTube channel, you'd kind of know who you're listening to. Um, but, but let me tell you some common people that we tend to listen to. We tend to listen to the news. Now, we're not anti-news here. But, but here's what happens. What's the effect of only always listening to the news? 24-7, especially in a time like this. Uh, whether it's MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, doesn't matter. What, what happens is it will create in you, it will put you under a spell of fear. It will put you under a, 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 a spell of anxiety. It will put you under a spell of thinking that everything is political and polarizing all the time because that's what makes the news. Uh, also, here's another thing that people tend to listen to. People especially, you know, consume any, it's unbelievable based on our discretionary time and discretionary income, the amount of entertainment that we consume. And what kind of spell does entertainment put you under? It, you don't live in the real world at all, right? A person who watches an enormous amount of television or an enormous amount of movie, uh, movies has usually an unrealistic picture of what life's like. They tend to think marriage is easier than it is, <laughs> making money is easier than it is, uh, resolving conflicts easier than it is. Um, some people, they, all they listen to is their friends. Now, that's not a bad thing if you have good, godly friends in your life. But God has made you and God has made me susceptible to peer pressure. The question is, are we going to put ourselves under the right, healthy, good, godly peer pressure? Because the truth is, show me your friends and I will show you your future. And that your friends, and you know this, and you know this for your kids too, if you've got kids, that, that their friends and your friends will determine the quality and the direction of your life. And, that, and you already know this, you're kind of the average of your five closest friends. And that's kind of, you know, it's true. You know, what um, the amount of money you make, how you vote politically, what you believe, how you raise your kids, the type of house you live in, very similar to your five closest friends. And so he's saying we need to be careful who we are listening to. Now, here's what he says in response. Here's how you fight against that. I want you to see what he says in verse, uh, the rest of the verse. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So how, how do you fight against falling under a spell of all different types? You have to have a clear, crystal clear picture of Christ crucified in your life over, above, that's bigger, larger, better, and clearer than everything else. He says publicly portrayed. Now that would be, you know, our way to, back then that was basically like they'd put a sign up in a very public place because, you know, they didn't have communication like we do. They didn't have <laughs> online stuff like we do. So they would put something up very publicly and formally. Uh, today we'd say it kind of like put up a big poster or put up a massive billboard on a highway. The, the whole idea is to put up a major sign. And what's interesting, he says, it's Christ crucified. It's not Christ in a manger. It's not Christ at the carpenter bench. Uh, it's not Christ teaching in the fields. The main uh, picture of Christ that motivates and changes the Christian life is the picture of Christ crucified. And, and what he's saying here is that, um, and he's going to get into this more, that the cross uh, you can't pick up where the cro cross leaves off because the cross never leaves off. The whole Christian life flows from what Jesus Christ has done at the cross. And so he gives us this big picture and he says, who are you listening to instead of thinking about Christ crucified? Here's the second thing he, he's gonna ask. Here's the second question. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Um, look at verse two. Let me ask you only this. I love this. Paul goes, let me ask you one question and then basically he's gonna ask four more questions after this. But he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? And he's going to say, how did you receive the Spirit? The answer is uh, by faith and freely from God. 
<laughs> that's how I received the Spirit. It was by faith, that's all I did, I believed, and I received it freely from God. He's gonna say, though, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Did you do something? Did you pray hard enough? Uh, did you read your Bible a lot? Did you, um, did you, um, you know, ha- have to do certain spiritual disciplines? Did you need to get baptized? Did you need to become a member of a church? Um, did you need to get circumcised? The answer to all that was no. All I did was I gave, I gave God my sin and myself, and I got the Spirit and salvation in return. And so he says, he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, I want to talk with us just for a little bit. We're going to do this in the whole series, but talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and the reason I want to talk about the Holy Spirit is for a couple reasons. One, he shows up. He's mentioned no less than 18 times in the rest of this book. And we're going to, so we're going to spend a lot of time about him, talking about him. But the other reason I want to talk about him is because a lot of people are confused about the Holy Spirit, right? Is he a force? No, he's a person. Is he a it? No, he's a he. Um, and, and the reason this happens is because, well, you have extremes. On one end, you have people who are obsessed with the Holy Spirit. Everything's about speaking in tongues. Everything's about being slain in the Spirit. Everything's about signs and wonders and the external signs of the Spirit, whereas the real work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and in the Christian life is internally, not externally. Uh, but then there are others, and, and this might be more of our team, our tribe, our tradition, and, and our temptation is going to be to ignore the Holy Spirit. For our functional trinity to be Father, Son, Holy Bible, uh, for us to... Think of the, the, the Holy Spirit as kind of a secondary or to think of him as kind of like a second cousin that's distant. And so what I want us to do is I want us to understand who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in salvation. See, here's how salvation works. We believe in, in a God that is one being in three persons, Trinitarian theology. And so it's, it's, you know, and we don't fully understand it, right? I mean, a God that you could fully understand would not be a God that you would be worthy of worship, right? God is above us. God is transcendent. God is different than us. But here's what we know. God the Father architects salvation. God the Son accomplishes salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation. They work together. God architects it. He did that in history, um, or sorry, in eternity. He planned it. He designed it. The, uh, Jesus accomplishes it 2,000 years ago by living a sinless life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then the Holy Spirit applies it. And that's when a person repents and believes and trusts in Christ. And so he says, well, when did this happen? What did you have to do? He says, you didn't have to do anything. You just, and and here's, here's the other important thing. He assumes and he expects that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Let me just encourage you that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian, when they become a Christian, get both salvation and they get the Holy Spirit that is with them. And so Paul says, that's the truth. And then Paul goes on and he, he, he says this, the Holy Spirit is who makes the gospel real and personal in your life. So what the Holy Spirit does is, you know, you, you, the Bible is boring until the Holy Spirit shows up. I remember, you know, I, I had a big red Bible that, was, uh, that I got when I was probably 10. And uh, I, I had no desire to read it. I wasn't a believer. It was a scary book. I never opened it. And when I became a Christian six years later, I read the entire New Testament in like a month. And I, and I did not read it all before that. But I, but I just, I, man, I knew how to read, but, you know, I, just, I didn't read much. And so I, I read the entire Bible because God gave me an appetite I read the entire New Testament because God gave me an appetite and a desire for the word. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is he makes sin real in your life. And so, you know, you, before, you know, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and applies the word, you think like, you know, you're a mistaker, you, you have accidents, you have indiscretions. When the Holy Spirit comes, you realize I'm a sinner. I'm justly deserving of God's judgment. Uh, there are sinful things that I do that God hates. And the third thing that the Holy Spirit does is he shines a spotlight on Christ. And you see, you see that Christ is 
not just a good moral religious teacher, but the God, man, Lord, and Savior substitute who died in your place for your sins. And so that's the heart of it. He says, he, so he talks about the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on and he asks a practical third question. How are you trying to live the Christian life? How are you trying to live the Christian life? So, you know, he says the, 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 the way that you began the Christian life is the Holy Spirit worked in your life as you heard the gospel and responded. But then he says, how are you trying to live the Christian life? Verse three, are you so foolish? So a third time he uses the, or sorry, a second time he uses the word foolish. Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he's basically asking this, uh, did you start something in the spirit that you're now trying to finish in the flesh? What he's saying is the whole Christian life, uh, we don't move on from, the things we did at the very beginning, which is I believe and I repent. That's the heart. It's like, well, what, what should you be doing to become a Christian? Well, I believe the gospel, I repent. I turn from, from my sin and I transfer trust to Christ. Okay, well, what should you be doing every day? Turning from sin, transferring trust to Christ. Well, what about 10 years from now? Turning from sin, transferring trust to Christ. And so he's talking about living a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life. How do you do that? You live your life the way Jesus lived his life. If you ever wonder, well, how did Jesus, especially the book of Luke, how did Jesus um, live his life? How did he fight sin? By the power of the Spirit, right? Now, before he goes and is tempted by the devil, it says the sp- he was with the Spirit. How does he do the spiritual disciplines? How does he disciple the people in his life? How, how does he walk through suffering? How does he do all the things that he does in ministry and mission? The answer is he does it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, so he, he talks about, this is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. Here's a simple way to think about it. The Holy Spirit gives you the want to, and the rest of the Bible and the church come alongside to help you with the how to. And that's really important because the change and transformation happens in a person's life when you, it's only the Holy Spirit who can make you want to do things. If you're like, I want to read my Bible, well, we'll figure out how. We'll teach you how to study it. We'll teach you how to read it. We'll teach you how to memorize it. We'll get you in a group. I mean, community groups and DNA groups and weekenders and everything else is, is to help you with the how-to. God's got to give you, by the Holy Spirit, the want to. You're like, I, I want to love my spouse even though he or she's difficult. I want to. I, I want to confess sin. I don't know how all the time. I, I want to repent and it's hard, but I want to do it. I want to share my faith. I'm scared. I don't know how. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I want to, I want to reach out to my neighbors I, I would like to disciple people. I really want to. I want to be around Christians. I want to be in the church. All of those want-tos are signs that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. And then the how-tos are the church and the word of God coming alongside and helping in those areas. And so he, he begins to talk about this. And he says, Christianity is a whole new way of living by the power of the Spirit. He said, this is contrary to living by works. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The flesh is just another way to say, um, by what you do. Uh, it, it, here's, it's, well, here's the technical term is legalism. And you always go, why is it so appealing in every generation? Why is legalism appealing? I think a couple reasons. Legalism is appealing because it puts man at the very center of everything. Because it puts in places and positions you or me as the one who can help himself, who can get the credit, who can be seen as great, who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's very, very American. And, and how do you know if you're living under the law instead of by the Spirit? If you're living under the law, you will have no joy. And I've seen this. I've walked into homes before. I've walked into whole ministries before where, where there's no grace. There's no spirit-filledness. There's no forgiveness. It's a lot of rules. It's a lot of regulations. It's a lot of laws. It's a lot of limits. And there's very little bit of grace. And nobody thrives. Nobody flourishes in that. By the way, that's why religious people are so grumpy. 
Religious people are so grumpy because they put so many laws and limits on themselves and they want to make sure that nobody else is happy and nobody else is having fun. And that's what religious people do. They look out to others. Now here's what else. Here's another way you know you're living under the law. Do you struggle with pride or do you struggle with despair? Because if you struggle with pride, here's what pride says. I'm doing well with the laws I'm trying to obey. My laws are read my Bible. I mean, you made them up, you know, uh, pray, uh, share my faith once a week, memorize a verse and whatever it is. Uh, and, and when you do those things, you feel very prideful and like you're doing really well. And like you want to tell other people and that God loves you more because you're doing them. And then if you're in despair is the opposite of that. It's like, well, I, you know, I said I was going to read the Bible in a year and I didn't even make it. Last year I made it to Leviticus. This year I didn't even make it to Exodus, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, and what happens in that situation is you go into despair. You know, I'm not sharing my faith. I'm not praying. I'm struggling with my same sin, you know. And so it, what, what the gospel does is it keeps you out of those two ditches, the ditch of pride, the ditch of despair. It says, look, it doesn't matter how good I am. I still need the grace of God. It doesn't matter the, how terrible of the things that I have done. I'm not uh, at a distance where I can't get access to the grace of God in my life. And so he asked these questions. He asked all about this. And then look what, look what happens next. Verse four, he says, did you suffer so many things? And all the early Christians suffered, right? This is why as we walk through a season of suffering, suffering is not new for Christians. If you read the Bible and if you read church history, uh, there are so many different trials and tragedies and tribulations, so many hardships and hurts that people have walked through. And he says, how are you going to make it? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he's saying this, that you'll realize it's faith alone. It's what God does, not what you can do when you walk through suffering. And, and, and we're experiencing this as a church and as a nation. We're realizing that when we, come, we need to come to the end of ourselves if we are going to experience the grace of God and the spirit of God and the cross of Christ. And so look at verse five. He says, does he who supplies the spirit, that's God the Father, to you and works miracles among you. He's saying, you got to see all these miracles. And by the way, we, every time a person comes to faith in Christ, uh, when they go from death to life or, or darkness to light, that's a miracle. He's saying, when you see that, did that happen by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And these are all rhetorical questions. We know the answer. It was by hearing with faith. And so, so Paul moves on, and this is interesting. Paul, in the first five verses, asks a ton of questions, six questions, all based on experience. He appeals to their experience. Hey, you know, let's talk about you becoming a Christian, you growing as a Christian, all of that kind of stuff. And then he's going to move from experience to scripture, right? Because experience is good. We care about your experience. Uh, we care about your testimony. But, you, you know, you could be deceived, right? You could be biased. You could be willfully blind. I mean, who knows all the reasons you could believe the wrong things or, or experience the wrong things or be deceived in what you thought you experienced. And so he takes all of verses one through five and he roots it in scripture. And in verses six through 14, he quotes several different Old Testament passages from several different Old Testament books to root their experience in Scripture, which is what we need to do. We need to root all of our experience in Scripture. And here's the next question he asks. Have you read your Bible? Basically, that's the summary question. Have you read your Bible? He says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now he goes back to Abraham. Now I won't spend a ton of time on this because we, we as a church walked through the life of Abraham not that long ago. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Abraham was not the first to have faith, but he is the father of the faith. He's not the first to have faith, but he's the father of faith. In other words, um, Enoch believed, it says, and, uh, and Noah believed, okay? But Abraham is a unique example of believing for a couple reasons. Because what Paul's going to do here, and it's really subtle, is Paul's going to say, okay, you want to talk about law, which is what they, the teachers want to talk about, the false teachers, or you want to talk about circumcision, or you want to talk about being a Jew. He's like, look, Abraham was called out of paganism. 
Now, he wasn't a Jew. God made him that. He was called out of paganism and idol worship. Oh, you want to talk about the law? He believed way before, 400 years, I believe it is, before the law existed in a formal form. Oh, you want to talk about circumcision? He believed 14 years before he was circumcised. And so what he's saying is Abraham is a great example because he did three, he did three things, or three things happened. God made promises. Abraham believed it. It was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. There's not, a, there's not another step. Uh, we, same thing happens today. God gives us his word. Whoever, be, you know, whoever repents and believes will be saved. We believe that. We are counted righteous. Now, what does it mean, verse six, to be counted righteous? Because all of these technical phrases, they're theological phrases. It's justification and stuff like that. What does that mean? Well, the, the best illustration I've ever heard is think of it this way. Think of a very wealthy, it could be either way, it could go either way, but in this situation, think of a very wealthy, very successful man with an enormous amount of money, uh, really no end in sight, and then he, he decides to marry a very poor woman who has an enormous amount of consumer debt, credit card debt, college debt, whatever, all types of debt. And what he realizes is when we get connected to each other, just like when Christ gets connected to the church, what you realize is that all that is mine will become hers. So she's going to get all the blessing of all the finances that that man has. But then he has to realize, right? And some of you had the situation as you got, as you kind of had the financial conversation as you got married, you had to realize, okay, all the debt that she has is going to become mine. And that's what happens when we're connected to Christ. He takes on our debt. We get all of his riches. That's what's called the great exchange. That's at the heart of the gospel. It happens by belief in Jesus Christ alone. And so he appeals to that. And look what he says in verse seven. He says, it's belief. It's not who you're connected to physically. Look at this in verse seven. He's saying, it's not about your family. It's not about the, the, your genetics and your background. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Because what they were saying is, I'll be okay because my parents are Christians. I mean, that's what happens today, right? And let me just say this. It's a great blessing. It is an incredible blessing to grow up in a Christian family to be constantly around God's people and under God's word. It's an incredible blessing. And we're so thankful that there are so many children and there are so many teenagers in our church who have that blessing. But we need to be very careful to communicate that God has no grandchildren. That every person must believe and repent for themselves. That the line to heaven is single file. And let me just be honest, nobody can repent for you. Right? There's a lot of things that people can do for you. Nobody can repent for you. Nobody can believe the gospel for you. Nobody can trust Christ alone for you. Nobody can give Jesus your sin and, and yourself except you. And so that's what he's getting at. He's trying to sh- talk about the personal nature of not who you're physically connected to in your legacy, in your lineage, but who you're spiritually connected to, being individually connected to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. And so he says all this, and then he goes on. And I'll try to quickly do this. He makes a few arguments here. He says this, verse eight. And here's the little final big question. Do you want to be blessed or cursed? Do you want to be blessed or cursed? And, and by the way, we live in a society that thinks God only blesses, he does not curse. We live in a society that thinks uh, God only loves, God does not hate. The Bible is binary. It says there's good and evil, there's blessing and curses, there's heaven and hell, there's Christians and non-Christians. It, it, it draws a line. And here's what it says. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. I love that. We have the gospel in the Old Testament. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. 
See, this is way back in Genesis chapter 12. He's saying the gospel message that we preach and we believe is a very old message that Abraham himself believed. He says this, so then, verse nine, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I wanna talk about what does it mean to be blessed, right? Because people are confused about this. The natural condition of the human heart thinks that blessing is God has given me a lot of money and a lot of health and a lot of freedom and a lot of autonomy, and, and that's not the definition of blessing. The definition of blessing is twofold. It's we get salvation when we trust in Christ, so we're freed from the penalty of sin, and we get the Holy Spirit to walk alongside us and to be inside us and to comfort us and to counsel us and to, his name is the helper, and to help us. And so really, you can think about the blessing of God in two ways. It's favor with God and fellowship with God. We have the favor of God that God looks upon us with a smile because we are connected to Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. We have the favor of God. But that, that's what happens at salvation and continues on. But we also have life with God. We have fellowship with God. Eternal life does not start when you die, but the moment that you believe. And so what it means to be blessed is it means to live life with God now, knowing you have his favor and being able to experience his fellowship. That's the definition of blessing. And but then he says this, that, that's, there's another part of this. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So God also curses. In fact, it says the whole creation was curse when Adam and Eve sin. This is why everything works against us. This is why we live in a broken and fallen world. The world is not more cursed today than it was years ago. It's just easier to see its cursedness and its brokenness in the season that we're currently in. It says this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everybody or everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. He's saying, here, here's what it means. He said, the person who's cursed is the person who's trying to do it by themselves. The person who's cursed is the person, because the standard's way too high. It's like, well, it's not just your standard. It's got to be God's standard. It's got to be all the laws. And it's got to be all the laws all the time perfectly. And not only that, if you could do all the laws all the time perfectly, we can't do that. But even if you could do that, then you also have to do it for, with the right motive and the right heart. It's like, have you or I ever done every, anything, even one thing in our life, perfectly out of a pure motive? I don't believe the answer is yes to that. And so he says, there's a curse that, and curse is, is the opposite of blessing, right? Uh, curse means basically to be separated. That's what it means. It means to be separated from the fellowship of God and from the favor of God. And here's what's so shocking and so surprising. Look with me at verse 11. It says this, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. That's the believer. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them. That's the doer. So you've got to decide, am I going to be the believer or the doer? The one who does them shall live by faith. And then look at verse 13. This is the gospel in a verse. Christ redeemed us. And redeem is a powerful word, right? Uh, redeem, to understand the word redeem or redemption, you have to understand a concept first. You have to understand the concept of slavery and enslavement. Because the only meaning of this word is the idea that somebody buys somebody who is enslaved to set them free. And the heart of the gospel is that you and I were enslaved to things we love. We were enslaved to things we hated. We were enslaved to Satan, to sin, and to death. And God has set us free. That's, that's the power of the gospel. But here's what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay, great. How? By becoming a curse. If you ever wondered, why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he was cursed, which means that he was going to be separated from God's favor and God's fellowship. He was separated so that we could be united to God. And here's what it says. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. See, what they would do back then is no matter how you were killed, if you were a criminal, they would then hang you on a tree as a sign of divine rejection. 
So the cross of Christ was a sign that Jesus Christ had been divinely rejected so that we could be accepted in his place. That's the heart and power and potency of the gospel. And so he says that, and then look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and me. That's everybody who's not Jewish by birth. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here's what it means. We are to live redeemed life. How do you know you're living a redeemed life? You're not living in the past. The, the person who talks all the time about their past or other people's past or what other people have done to them or what they, the sins that they've committed, that is a person who's not living in the forgiveness and freedom that God gives us and is not living a redeemed life. And, and, and if you are a Christian and you are living a redeemed life, the call of Scripture and the call of the rest of Galatians is don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to the old habits and it's going to be a, t- a temptation when you are isolated and you have more free time. There is nothing more dangerous than a bored person. <laughs> and so you want to be aware of the old habits. You want to be aware of the old relationships. You don't want to be texting with these people that you know you shouldn't be texting. You want to be aware of the old websites. You want to be aware of the old people and the old places. And you want to remind yourself in that time, not, you're not strong enough in yourself. You don't have the willpower. You need to remember, wait a second, this is what God has saved me out of. He has set me free. I now not only get a new relationship with God, I get a new relationship with sin where I have the power by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. And, and we want to just continue in this season to remember the cross of Christ. See, the cross of Christ reminds us that God never forgets. Let me just say that again. The cross of Christ is so powerful because the cross of Christ reminds us that God never, ever forgets. He doesn't minimize sin. He doesn't, uh, you know, swipe it under the rug. He, he, sweep it under the rug. He doesn't uh, minimize it and think it's no big deal. He doesn't uh, just completely forget about it and say, come on in. He deals with it decisively at the cross. That is our hope in a cursed world. Church, what we get to do in this season is it's possible for us to live a blessed life. And what I mean by that, I don't mean health, wealth, and prosperity. By a blessed life, I mean uh, the ability to have favor and fellowship with God. We can live a blessed life in a cursed world and in a broken and fallen world. And that's what the, the world needs, a church that is that realizes the blessing of God, that we have the favor of God, the fellowship of God, we have the spirit of God, we have salvation. And what we wanna do is we wanna go out into the world and we want to be a blessing. See, what's interesting is when God first shows up to Abraham, what he says to Abraham is, I am going to bless you. But he doesn't end there. It's like, I'm not going to bless you just so you can have favor and fellowship with me. I want to bless you so that you can be a blessing to other people. We have a unique opportunity, and I don't know for how long, but we have a unique opportunity to be a blessing first and foremost to the other Christians in our church, by the way we minister and care for them, but we have an opportunity to be a blessing in our city and in our community by bringing both good works and good words, by bringing good deeds and good news in this season. So would you pray, for, pray with me that we would be the type of church that is a blessing to our city and blesses our city? Pray with me. Um, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name right now. And I want to pray for our church first. I want to pray for anybody who is believing lies. Paul says, who has bewitched you? Lord, I want us to uh, believe the truth and believe Christ crucified over and above anything else that we're hearing. That that is where our attention ultimately goes. That's where our thoughts ultimately go. Uh, Lord, I pray for people who are trying to finish in the flesh what they started in the spirit. I pray that this time of quarantine would be a unique time of dependence on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that people, as they go in to your word, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate it 
and speak to them in unique ways in this season. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be a blessing as a church in our city in this unique time in history. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.